This evening we pick up our series of messages uh, from 1 Corinthians as we've been looking at Paul and his letter that he wrote to the believers in Corinth. We've already identified some issues within the church and uh, again this evening we're going to uh, highlight a certain situation but the main focus will be on the response that we are called uh, as a church or as a body of Christ to have in facing those kinds of situations. So we'll be looking at chapter 5 and we'll be uh, reading it in its entirety and it is found on page 1134 or you can follow along uh, on the overhead behind me. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you already are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
As you know, many memories are stored in our brains. And sometimes those memories are triggered <clears throat> in the present and take us back uh, many years in our lives to kind of undergo uh, one of those kinds of thoughts. Well, I had that as I was working on this particular message. It was a memory that brought me all the way back to third or fourth grade. So that would be the early 1970s. It was a time, it was a tough year for my dad as a dairy farmer. In fact, in our particular area, there was an infection um, of what was called baby calf disease. And it affected the respiratory system of the newborn calves in the dairy herd. And they would pass away or die within a few days. Uh, for example, I think my dad, out of the 40 uh, cows that he had, 20 of the calves were killed because of that disease. But my specific memory was of the day my three brothers and I jammed into our 1968 Ford pickup with my dad, of course, and we drove five hours to Freeman, South Dakota. And in the back of the pickup, covered by a tarp, was a dead little calf. Now at the time, we were not aware of that fact. But I do remember a little bit. I remember my dad being very, very quiet and very reflective as he was driving. And I remember uh, us boys just being excited that we were on this adventure, a five-hour trip. I also remember, interestingly, that my mom had given us a bag of saltwater taffy. So we were having fun and oblivious to what was the nature of this trip. So that memory came to my mind as I was preparing the message. My mind took me back to that trip. Why was that? Because the only way to stop the disease was for the scientists in the laboratory in Freeman, South Dakota to take the remains of that calf that we had in the back of the pickup to discover what it was that caused the disease and then to come up with an antidote. That's why we were on that trip. And otherwise, we would just have continued to lose more and more of the little calves. So in other words, to ignore the problem would only make the results more devastating. And now here's the connection with our message. We can say likewise, to ignore willful and intentional sin of a professing member within the church would cause pain within the body of Christ. It would result in deterioration and devastation. Now I would contend that many churches today choose to allow matters of church discipline to go unaddressed. In fact, when's the last time you've heard a sermon specifically on church discipline? Maybe you noticed the title when you came in, The Lost Art of Church Discipline. I think it's fair to say that it's not very popular these days. In fact, 
as I was thinking about it, there's about three, I think, uh, different opinions when it comes to it. First, there's those who contend that, you know, we shouldn't judge other people. It's the perspective, who am I to judge someone else when I'm struggling with sin in my own life? And some will incorrectly say that that's what Jesus is telling us when he says, uh, don't look at the sliver in your brother's eye when there's this big plank in your own eye. Second, there's the perspective that we live in a free society and everyone can choose what they want to do and how they want to behave. So, we shouldn't intrude on the personal freedoms of another person. And I think there's a third mentality. Some contend that any form of discipline is actually archaic. It's the old way of doing things. The best way to deal with obvious sin is to shower that person with love so that you love them back into the fellowship. In our passage this evening, Paul emphasized the importance of setting the proper tone to address sinful behaviors because to ignore them would make the whole body of Christ more susceptible to all different forms of sin. So discipline from that perspective is caring so much for the well-being of your fellow believers and members of the church, the body of Christ, that you are willing to confront them and to talk to them about it. We need to understand that in the city of Corinth, and I would contend like our Western society today, uh, they had a lot of attention that they placed on issues of sexual permissiveness. It was common for people back then to abuse God's desire in which he takes physical intimacy and reserves it for marriage. There was violation of that. And that happens today as well. But it's interesting that Paul's focus in our passage is not on the situation itself. In fact, he doesn't mention names. He doesn't give us a whole lot of specifics. But he's focusing on the fact that it was being allowed within the church community. Theologian John MacArthur writes, This chapter is not directed at the believers or the so-called believers in verse 11 who were committing the sins, but at the rest of the church who stood by doing nothing about it. In fact, arrogantly refusing to do anything about it. So this evening we're going to look closer at this passage in chapter 5. And we're just going to kind of note how, how Paul handles it. We notice, first of all, that he identifies a need in order for church discipline to take place. As I mentioned earlier, the morality of those who lived in Corinth was much like the morality of the state in which we live. It was quite immoral. Many were just living together. Marriage was not necessarily something uh, that they thought needed to be followed. It was acceptable to just 
have all sorts of different unhealthy relationships. So the believers in the church at Corinth, they were saved out of that kind of community. They had been called by Christ through the righteousness and holiness of Christ to be pure and holy, to be sanctified more and more into his image, set apart. So there was the problem that those who lived in Corinth lived and began to be influenced by its standards, its morals. So instead of living like they should, wanting to become more and more conformed after the image of Christ, they began to live like those who were around them. And that's how it crept into the church. As we look closely, we see in verse 1 that Paul hears a report. It says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now, those, that was some disturbing news for Paul, who had put together this group of believers and had invested his heart and soul into their ministry. The believers at Corinth were called out of the, out of the immoral situation to be Christ-like. And, and this news was like a crippling disease infecting the wholesomeness of the church community. It was starting to spread throughout the body. In fact, he says that it had reached a point that it was even surpassing the pagan city of Corinth. The specific situation was one, we're told, in which a man was living in open incest with his father's wife, which most likely means his stepmother. Now, there's some things we are going to highlight quickly this evening that I think are important. First of all, it's important to know that this was an ongoing kind of situation because Paul is speaking grammatically in the present tense. So he's not referring to someone who did something in the past and repented but he's describing someone who is continuing a relationship. It is still in progress. Another thing to note is that this individual is a member of the church. He was still accepted even as a member within the Christian community even though he was living in open immorality. And then finally, and this was the most disturbing, that the church was tolerant of that situation. So Paul's complaint is not merely that there is this sin that has taken place and, and it's a bad witness within the community, but he's saying even the other believers within the church are not crying out for something to be done. There's been no exercise of any form of discipline by the church. That sinful condition was allowed and even accepted by the fellow believers. So we see that Paul is upset. We see that in his response. He says, 
are, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So he is rightfully very angry. That sin had reared its ugly head within the community of believers, and it had brought to light that the whole body of Christ was rationalizing why they were allowing it to continue. They not only excused that, but he says they were proud about it. They were arrogant about it. Pride is that way. It blinds a person's eyes to what is right and what is wrong. We are not to be prideful as Christians. So we see he identifies this need. Notice that Paul prescribes a treatment for what to do with it, and that's found in verses 3 through 5. In other words, he goes from diagnosing what the problem is to now how can we treat that problem. And he calls for an immediate emergency kind of operation. He calls for a surgical removal of the part of the body that is infected and causing the rest of the body to hurt and suffer. Now Paul says he's been absent from the church community in Corinth, and he he had been for a while, but then he explains in verse 3 that he still is present with them in spirit. In verses 4 and 5, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, and then he adds, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now there's a lot packed into those two verses. And once again, I'm just going to highlight what I think are a couple of important issues. I think one principle important for us to see is that the authority for exercising discipline in the church is found in Jesus Christ. In fact, if you were to go to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 18, there's some instructions on the basics of why and how to go about with discipline. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church." And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus himself is setting forth this process. How do we respond as a church community? First of all, when you become aware that there's another member involved in a specific sin that people are knowledgeable about, you are to go to that person privately. And the reason being that, first of all, you may have misunderstood, so to get it clarified, but secondly, they may listen to you, and they may then end up admitting, 
taking ownership, repenting, and then it has reached the intended result, which is for that person to deal with what he or she is doing. But if that person refuses to listen, it says you are to take two or three other Christians with you to address the situation. And once again, if that person takes ownership and admits it and repents, you've accomplished the purpose that's intended. But if that person refuses to listen even to others who come, it says it is to be taken then to the ruling body of the church. And if that person belligerently and continues to not listen, that person is to be removed. So the authority is found in Christ, and we're also given some specifics. Second, notice the reason for the sinning believer, as Paul says, is to be handed or delivered to Satan is specifically that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So that whole process of discipline, of working with that person, and even to the point of saying, we're sorry, but you cannot continue with that lifestyle unrepentant. The goal of that is integral to that person being called back and hopefully will then realize their mistake and want to be a part of the body. Because as believers, we're set apart to be holy. And as we are set apart to be holy, that process begins within us in a very practical way. It's not like we become perfect people, absolutely not. But our goal is to be like Christ. God is concerned that we progress in that goal. And so God will often do things that are rather drastic to call us back. We proceed with verses 6 through 8 in chapter 5. It explains the reason for discipline. And Paul uses an illustration, kind of like an object lesson. He says, you take a little pinch of leaven when you're making a bread, and it causes all of the dough to be affected. And then he says, similarly, a little sin allowed to remain within the church will cause the entire church to somehow be influenced by that. It's interesting he uses the figure of leaven because to the Jewish mind, it pointed to the Passover. That was the time when they were to eat unleavened bread. It was to symbolize that God's people had left their old ways behind as they went out from Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Each year they would remember, they'd eat the Passover lamb and the unleavened bread, and then they would remember what God had done for them. But here in the New Testament, we see that image is changing. It's not just a one time per year thing. 
but rather Christ died once for all. And it's mentioned specifically in verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. He died on the cross so that God's wrath passed over us to rest upon him. And that need not be repeated. So that's the reason. And then the last part tells us the scope of church discipline. And Paul's very careful to clarify that he's not speaking about how they relate to the world or to non-believers, but what he does say is that they're not to associate with those immoral people who are followers of Jesus Christ. Paul makes that commandment and he applies it to those who claim to be Christian and yet live a lifestyle like the world. So the one who claims to be a Christian and yet continues needs to suffer discipline. He's been warned, exhorted to repent, has refused to listen, and finally that's the ultimate step. Why? I think there's at least three different reasons. <clears throat> First is that so that sin will not contaminate the church. Paul used that illustration of a little leaven and how it can influence the entire body. Second, because the outside community must see that there's a difference between the church and the world. The world, in other words, is to look and see the church, and in that they see the love and the holiness of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the pain of excommunication is designed to drive that sinner, that believer, back into the church. Because if that person is allowed to remain in their sin without being disciplined, they will never be motivated to even forsake that sin and repent. So what is our takeaway this evening? I think there's a few things in this passage. The very first thing is identify the problem or the sin and don't ignore it. Pray for wisdom and discernment. Ask for advice from those who are leaders in the church. I think another takeaway is care enough to confront that person. There's a book that I have it's by David Augsburger. The title is Caring Enough to Confront. In other words, if you truly care about someone, you're not going to allow them to continue in a lifestyle of sin. It allows that person to take ownership or responsibility. And perhaps it can be resolved privately. I think another takeaway is if there is a problem, and if that problem is denied, it needs to be brought to the leaders in the church, the pastors or the elders. 
What I believe is that often, when it comes to issues of church discipline, people are very hesitant. So by the time it actually comes to the elders in the church, it's already taken its toll. It's like the 20 little calves that already had passed away because it took that long. And then finally, that church leaders need to proceed carefully and with a desire for reconciliation. And then one closing thought by an author who's reflecting on the issue of church discipline. He says, discipline is difficult. It's painful. Often, it's heart-rending. It is not that we should refuse to love the offenders, but rather that we should love Christ, love his church, and love his word even more. Our love, then, as expressed to those who are offenders, is not to be a sentimental tolerance, but a love that desires to correct. Let's join together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we know that approaching another person, a person who we know is doing something that is not in line with your word, and that has been already identified and is causing hurt and damage within the church community. Lord, we know that it's not easy to approach that person. But yet, as the Apostle Paul tells us in this passage, out of love and care for one who is part of the body of Christ, we are to approach that person, first of all, privately, and then seek prayerfully to not only understand what is happening, but to give that person an opportunity to take ownership. Lord, we know that often by the time it comes to the attention of the leaders and the elders, at that point it's hard for it to be reconciled. So help us as a church community to be able to encourage one another to have a, a mutual kind of accountability so that we would love one another enough to point out areas in which we need to change and take ownership. Lord, the ultimate goal is reconciliation. And Lord, we know that it is so important within the body of Christ because these issues uh, have an eternal nature. And so as we move forward, as, as we seek uh, to be the body of Christ, help us, O oh Lord, not to stand by or to rationalize or give excuses but that we would truly take action and identify 
and care enough about other members that we would desire healing. We thank you for your church. And we thank you, Lord, that we are called more and more to be conformed into the image of Christ and to be a people to whom others can see Christ and want then to be followers of Christ. And may we, O oh Lord, uh, do it to your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.